Well, good morning, Calvary Souderton, and good morning, Calvary Quakertown, on this beautiful Memorial Day weekend. It's good to see you all, and uh, we certainly plan on and hope that you'll find the time that you're spending with us well spent this morning. We're in a series that we're calling Continuing What Jesus Started, and I was reminded as I started working through uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, when we first started using that phrase, Continuing What Jesus Started, we were actually in a series in the book of Acts. And we were saying that what that first group of followers did was continue what Jesus started, but because the context was different, they continued what Jesus started differently. So a couple of examples. Jesus called disciples by just walking up to them at their jobs and saying, drop that, come and follow me. And they did. Jesus fed people by taking a little boy's lunch or taking scraps of food, multiplying it and feeding thousands. That early church fed people. That early church called people to follow Jesus, but they did it differently. They preached the message of the scripture and they said Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one who's coming to bring forgiveness and the rightful ruler of this world. They fed people by selling their possessions putting those resources into play, and buying the food that would then feed the people. They continued what Jesus started, but they did it differently because the context was different. Well, that's true today as well. Our context is different. The circumstances are different. And if we're going to continue what Jesus started, we're going to do it differently as well. That's one of the reasons I really like 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 combines two ideas that we often want to separate. The end of 2 Timothy 3, which we're going to look at next week in detail, is all about the Bible. And there you find some of the most famous verses in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, all those different things. But the beginning of the chapter is all about the culture. The beginning of the chapter is all about the world in which we live. And what Paul's doing there is telling us that if we're going to continue what Jesus started, if we're going to live out that mission, we have to know something about both of those. We need to recognize the world in which we live, know the themes, the values, the narratives of our world, as well as know what the Scripture says, the themes, the values, and the ultimate narrative of the gospel. It's not an either-or. They both go together. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll probably read throughout, I don't know, 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. And then we're going to look at the culture piece today, the Bible piece next week, but I'll probably spill over a little bit today, and then next week we'll pick up culture a little bit again. So follow along as Paul writes to Timothy about the culture in which Timothy's ministering in that he needs to know something about. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds, who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far, because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured? Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the scriptures which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now some of you are probably sitting there thinking, couldn't we have skipped this section? What the heck is that? Well, just like Paul says to Timothy, if we're going to continue what Jesus started, we have to know something about the context in which we do it. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The context in which we continue what Jesus started. We're going to start by understanding culture. That's where we're going to start. And I want to talk about an assumption that we sometimes miss. It's assumed in the Bible that we will not only know, but we be well acquainted with the context in which we're living. Now the reason that we have to kind of reiterate that because it seems like for the last number of decades, or maybe even for the last hundred years or so, Christians, many Christians, some churches, have kind of take it as God's, have taken it as God's word to them that they need to isolate, insulate, and separate from the culture around them. There's a big problem with that. Jesus. Jesus steps into a culture. He lives in that culture, he's present in the culture, he participates in that culture, and that's what he's calling us to do as well. But you need to be aware of what's happening in the culture. Did you notice the first verse of chapter 3 says, mark this, mark it. Paul's saying to Timothy, look around, you've got to see what's going on. So we need to know and understand what's going on. But that's not just a theme in 2 Timothy. In fact, that theme runs through the Bible. Let me show you just two verses, um, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that show you the assumption behind what Paul now writes. Here's a really weird verse, all the way back in the Old Testament, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. My guess is none of you read 1 Chronicles today. But in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we read this really weird verse. The men of Issachar were small in number, right? Like 200 men of Issachar. They understood the times and therefore knew what to do. Now, let me say that again. The men of Issachar understood the times and knew what they should do. Do you realize how weird that sounds? Most of the time, we think it should read like this. The men of Issachar 
understood the Bible and therefore knew what they should do. The men of Issachar understood the scripture and knew what they should do. But that's not what it says. It says the men of Issachar understood the times and knew what they should do. Now here, here's the context of what's going on. At that particular time, Israel had two anointed kings. Saul was the king and David was the king. And you want to know something? If you have two anointed kings and they've both, both been anointed by Samuel, the prophet of God, how in the world do you know which is the real king? Well, the men of Issachar knew it was David and it wasn't Saul, not because they read the Bible, but because they understood the times. They saw what was going on around them. They understood the times and knew what they should do. Well, we need to know something about the times so we can know what we should do as well. Here's another one from Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and on one occasion, he says this. Oh, so you know how to discern... The appearance of the sky. You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now here's what Jesus is saying. You guys are really great at looking at the sky and predicting the weather, unlike meteorologists today, right? Uh, but they were better back then, I guess. They looked at the sky and said, oh, look, it's going to rain this afternoon. Oh, tomorrow's going to be a great day. They looked at the sky and they could predict the weather. But then Jesus rebukes them and says, but you look around and you cannot interpret the sign of the times. Notice, that has nothing to do with the Bible, right? That has nothing to do with Scripture. It is to do with recognizing what's happening in the world and in the culture, in your context, in the situations. That theme runs through the Bible. The assumption is that we will know something about our culture. It's essential that we know what's happening in our world. The stories, the narratives, the values. We need to know that if we're going to continue what Jesus started. That's essential. Well, if that's true then, what are some themes of our culture that we need to know? Well, I'm going to tease out a few for you. So uh, you probably have heard these words before. If not, I'm going to teach them to you. They're kind of uh, big fancy words. But at the same time, the meaning is easy to understand. And once I mention them, you will clearly be able to think of dozens of examples in your family, in your neighborhood, from the news, in the world, and in your own heart. All right, here we go. Here's the first theme of our culture we're going to look at. Individualism. Individualism. We live with ourselves in the center. Isn't that right? And everything in our culture pushes that message. Now, there's a big problem there because the Bible says that we were made in the image of God. Therefore, God is supposed to be in the center. But our culture puts the person, the individual, in the center. And all of life is to orbit the individual. Now, individualism flows pretty quickly and naturally into narcissism. Now, what in the world is narcissism? Well, Narcissus uh, was actually, it, not, Narcissus is a myth, right? And Narcissus had an enemy named Nemesis. You've heard of your Nemesis, right? Well, Nemesis was the enemy of Narcissus. Narcissus was a hunter. And Narcissus was really good looking. I mean, I don't know why they thought he was good, but he was really good looking. So Nemesis, his enemy, figured, oh, boy, I know how to get Narcissus. And so he lures Narcissus 
down to a still pond and has, Nar- and has Narcissus look into the pond. Now remember, there weren't a lot of mirrors then, so people had a lot of free time. So he's down at the pond, and he looks into the pond, and he sees his reflection. And Narcissus falls in love with his reflection. In fact, he never leaves the pond. He gazes at himself all the rest of his life, and he dies at the pond. Now, does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's where the whole idea of narcissism comes from. It's the preoccupation with self. It's having yourself in It's all about me. It's, now, you've heard that before, right? In fact, you've heard me say numerous times, the best definition of sin, as it's defined in the Bible, is me first. That's individualism. That's narcissism. Me first. That's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. God creates human beings to live God first. We turn from that and live me first. That's the engine that produces all of the mess. That was true in Paul's day. That was true in Timothy's day. And it's still true in our day. The the individual outworkings of individualism and narcissism work out in different cultures in different ways. But you see this, don't you? You see it on TV, you see it in the movies, you see it in your... We have the seeds of that in our own heart, right? It's all about me and what I want, and we kind of manipulate and exploit and cajole to try to get the way we want. On the outside, we, we never would present that image, but on the inside, we know exactly what we're trying to accomplish. So that's individualism. The second theme of culture is relativism. Now, if, if individualism and narcissism is me first, relativism is my truth, my truth. So you've heard this, right? There's your truth and my truth, but no true truth. That's our world. That is relativism. Relativism says there really is no true truth. There's no capital T truth. There's your truth and my truth. Therefore, if you play with that a little bit, here's here's what happens. Religion, all religions, become nothing but advice. Just like when you turn on the TV, here's the best diet ever. That's advice. Use these pans and your food will never, ever, ever stick. That's advice, right? Or you need this exercise program to whip your butt into shape. That's what you need. You see, religion is just like all of that. Religion is choose the advice that works best for you. A big problem with that, Jesus comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Relativism says, no, 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 all religions, all worldviews, all systems, they're all going to the same place. If that's true, then Jesus was a liar because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. The only way that relativism can be true is if there's no true truth. If there's true truth, then there are a whole bunch of people and a whole lot of thought systems that are wrong. So the Bible says, you live in a world of my truth? The Bible says, no, there's true truth. Big difference. Well, there's one last one. Consumerism. Now, you know this one, right? Because you like to shop. Consumerism would be the expression, um, my wants. So if it's me first, my truth, my wants. Have you ever noticed you can't escape advertising today, can you? Just think of sporting events. Do you remember when the outfield wall in baseball was green. Now it's nothing but a backdrop for advertisements that are plastered from one side to the other. 
And then we've got computer-generated advertisements behind home plate now. So when you're watching a pitcher throw the ball, they're all computer-generated advertisements back there, and they change inning to inning depending on who's paying the most money. How about hockey? Remember when the boards were white? That was because when there was a good fight, you could see the blood splatter. That, now there's advertisements on every square inch of the boards, and there are advertisements painted on the ice, and there are computer-generated advertisements on the, on the glass behind the goals. We can't escape it. Ever watch NASCAR? How many empty square inches do the drivers have on their clothing? There are advertisements everywhere. How about their cars? It's packed from one side to the other, right? We live in a world of advertising, and all of those advertisers have done something. They've been pushing us toward a consumer-oriented perspective. We live in a world of consumerism. Now, here's how, here's how that works. Well, if we're primarily consumers, then as good consumers, we're go we need the best value for our buck, right? And so if everything is about getting the goods and services you want at the best price, then you need to be a sophisticated, careful, and good steward as a shopper, right? You think that mentality spills over into church at all? Yeah, just a little, right? How many of us gather, and I'm not immune to any of this either, how many of us gather for a church service as consumers and we're evaluating the goods and services that are dispensed? Is the music the way I like it? Is the preacher, was he too long? Were the stories this way? And, we, and if the goods and services were not to my liking, individualism, narcissism, if not, then I'll complain. If I complain and don't get what I want, I'll go find another dispenser of goods and services. Isn't that how it works? You see, we're all impacted by the themes of our culture. And so we would be fools to think, well, we need to live in this culture, but we need to separate from the culture. No, no, no. We are affected and infected by the culture. So what Paul's saying to Timothy is, know the culture and know what you've been affected and infected by. So you're able to see it when it appears and you're able to see the results of narcissism and relativism and consumerism so that you can stand against them as we should stand against. See how that works? Well, then in the passage, what does Paul actually say? I mean, Paul doesn't say to Timothy, so just know what's happening in the world. Okay, now let's move on to the important stuff. No, that's not what he says. He says you need to understand what's out there. And then he lists 18 different things. Did you count them as I read through them? Uh, we're, we're not going to look at all 18. But I'll tell you this. You can go back through that list. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, abusive, disobedient. You go back through the list. You will see the themes of narcissism, relativism, and consumerism all over the list. Some things never change. So what are we to do? In the words that Paul writes to Timothy, he not only says understand your culture, he tells us how to engage the culture. So what we're going to do is kind of tease out some points of engagement, things that we need to understand and then apply if we're going to continue what Jesus started in this culture that is very opposed to what Jesus is about. All right, so here are our points of engagement. Number one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You know, did you ever watch the news, throw up your hands, I can't believe it. I, I think God would say, well, you should. I kept telling you about it. 
Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Paul goes through the list that he says to Timothy, Timothy, mark this. If we knew what the book said, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised at narcissism and relativism. We shouldn't be surprised at hedonism. We shouldn't be surprised at any of that. We, sh we should recognize those things are true because they're coming from a me-first heart that's in every one of us since the fall. All we're looking at are symptoms that come from the wrong engine. Don't be surprised. Now, here's how uh, Paul begins. Mark this, right? Don't be surprised. Notice, to me, here's what's happening. Then he says, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, when I say last days, some of you think Armageddon, the rapture, left behind. Well, he's not talking about any of that. He's not talking about any of that. When Paul says the last days, he means all the days in between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming, they're all the last days. Now, you may object and say, well, that's a really, really long time in last days. Yeah, did you ever watch the end of an NBA game? That's a really, really long time. Those last two minutes take two weeks to play, right? So here we are in the last days, and there are a lot of last days. Uh, since it's Memorial Day weekend, I was thinking about a military stuff. Um, so here's an example. On June 6th, 1944, the world changed. That was D-Day. 24,000 troops land on those beaches in France. And most historians will tell you, Germany was defeated on D-Day. Once the Allied forces had a foothold in France, the war was essentially over. But it took almost a year for the war to actually be over. You see, Germany was defeated on D-Day, but Germany wasn't destroyed until VE Day. So let's rewind that. Evil was defeated the day Jesus walked out of that tomb alive. It's over. Jesus lived this perfect life. He died in our place. And when he rose from the dead, evil was defeated. End of story. But evil wasn't destroyed on that first Easter. That will happen when Christ returns. You see, all of those days where that last year, that was the last days of World War II with Germany. Well, we're in the last days between Christ's first coming and Christ's Christ second coming. We're in those last days. And so Paul is not saying to Timothy, oh, Timothy, as it's getting near the end, and oh, it's, it's going to get worse. That's not what he's saying. He's just saying, evil's a bad loser. That's what he's saying. Evil's a bad loser. My wife is a uh, hockey fan. To be more accurate, she's a Flyers fan. Which means these last few years have been rather painful in the Zimmerman house. Now, she's not in this service, so I can tell you this. I won't be able to say this next service. My loving, kind, sweet wife. In watching a Flyers game that the game has already been decided. It was decided in the second period. The third period, you're just kind of waiting for the inevitable loss at the end. But as the game begins to wind down, and you know the Flyers will lose, my sweet, mild-mannered wife says things like this. Well, we can't win the game. Let's win the fight. Right? Drop the gloves. Let's get it on. Let's teach them a lesson so they don't want to come in here next time. Now, interesting, right? 
Well, that's kind of what's going on in the last days, right? The defeat is sure, but the enemy's a bad loser. He's a sore loser. And so what's he doing? Between the time of his defeat and the time of his destruction, he's raising all kinds of hell. That's what we see in the world. That's what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, the gun has sounded. The last days have begun. The defeat is sure, but the destruction isn't here yet. And the enemy, he's a really, really sore loser. So he's not going to give up easily. It's going to be painful from the defeat to the destruction. But make no mistake, destruction is on the way because the defeat has already been posted. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. That's the first thing. The second part of this engagement would be the truth will come out. The truth will come out. That's the whole weird thing there about Janus and Jambres. It's the only time that they're mentioned in the Bible. Who in the world are Janus and Jambres? Well, really, we don't know. But here's what Jewish legend has said. Jewish legend says that Janus and Jambres were the two magicians in Pharaoh's court. And so remember when Moses comes back and he's going to lead the people out with these curses. And remember, he takes the, his staff and it becomes a snake and he turns the river to blood, then frogs and all this stuff, kind of all those curses come. Well, Janus and Jambres in Jewish legend are two magicians in Pharaoh's court. And do you remember? They are able to duplicate the first three miracles. Remember? And so Moses throws this staff down, it becomes a snake. The magicians throw down their staffs, they become snakes. Oh yeah, Moses' snake eats theirs. All right? Then the next couple, they're, they're able to duplicate. But starting with the fourth one, there is no duplication. They then go to Pharaoh and say, we're shooting blanks. Moses is the real deal. You should let these people go. The truth will come out. Now, maybe we need to say to us, yeah, the truth will come out sometimes in this life. Isn't that right? I guarantee you the truth will come out in the next life. You may be able to hide, and somebody may be able to hide, and you may feel that you're being exploited and manipulated, and all these people are again. That's okay. You live as you should live. You continue what you, the truth will come out, if not in this life. Certainly in the next. Uh, Kim and I are Columbo fans. We watch Columbo every Sunday night together, beginning at 8 o'clock, off until 10. We've seen each of the episodes many times. It doesn't matter. Now, when Columbo came out, it was different than all of the other detective shows at the time. Because you know, right at the beginning of the show, who did it and how they did it, right? That's the only detective show like that. All the other detective shows, you're lost through most of the movie, right? You're figuring out as the detectives. No, not Columbo. Right in the beginning, they show you who did it and how they did it. Now, Columbo doesn't know, right? Because he's bumbling around somewhere, right? Um, but you know, the rest of the show is how the truth is going to come out. How's he going to discover it? How's he going to present it? And how at the end is the perpetrator going to throw up his hands and say, you got me. Every show. The truth comes out. Every show. It's a, watch tonight. Every show. The truth comes out. <laughs> and the message of the scripture is, the truth will come out. You live out those 18 qualities, the beginning of the chapter, the truth will come out. 
If you live the opposite of those 18 qualities and you try to follow Jesus and you pursue him and you're trusting him and living for him, the truth will come out. Often in this life. Always in the next. So what does Paul say to Timothy? Timothy, here's how you engage the culture. Don't be surprised and shocked when you watch the news and see these things. Don't be surprised. The fall was real. Evil's real. I mean, we're up against an enemy that's a really sore loser. Don't expect things to be good. But the truth will come out. Here's the third one. Choose good mentors. Choose good mentors. Now, here's how uh, Paul says that to Timothy. Now, Paul is Timothy's mentor, right? And Timothy is the mentee. So here's how it goes. If you put the words up there, I can read it. There we go. (laughs) Maybe I can read it. (laughs) Paul says to Timothy, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What's Paul saying? Timothy, look, I'm not perfect. I received from Jesus the baton of grace in the gospel. And by his grace and the power of the Spirit, I'm trying to run as as well as I can. And I've passed this baton of the gospel on to you. And so I didn't do it perfectly. You want to find a perfect example, you look at the head of the line. Jesus did it perfectly. I'm not a perfect example. But Timothy, if you need a flesh and blood example, if you need a flesh and blood proximity, right? Somewhere reasonable facsimile, but far from the perfect one. If you need a facsimile, look at me a little bit, but recognize I'm kind of screwed up a little bit like you. But you can look at me if you need flesh and blood. And then Timothy, you now run well and recognize you need to hand the baton and you need to live in such a way that those that are coming after you can look at you and see a reasonable facsimile, but everybody needs to look to the head of the line and see Jesus, the one that started it. You see what's happening? We need flesh and blood examples, right? I mean, it's one thing to read in the Bible, continue what Jesus started. But don't you need flesh and blood examples of what continuing what Jesus started looks like in your neighborhood? Don't you need to see what what it looks like with your kids in school and with you in school? What's continuing what Jesus started look like in college, in a college classroom? What does it look like in your marriage what we need flesh and blood examples of that people that are trying to figure it out so as we're going to engage our our culture choose good mentors oh yeah and don't be mistaken there are others running this relay race the enemy has a baton he passed it and that baton's being passed and those runners are running too right Be careful of who you're watching. Don't follow those that are going down the 18-way path. Follow Jesus. And if you need a reasonable facsimile, look for some people that are doing that reasonably well in our world and in our culture and kind of emulate them a little bit. Reasonable facsimiles, but Jesus the ultimate. See how that works? So choose your mentors and choose them well. Well, we got another one, and they get harder. Overcome... uh, Evil with good. Now, there's not a whole lot of good that's mentioned. Did you notice that? Not a whole lot of good in the chapter. But it's not that hard to figure out. Go back to the list of 18. Just do the opposite. Right? There's a helpful hint. (laughs) And so, you know, go back and read the list and just write the opposite. And if you're going to overcome evil with good, you do the good rather than the evil. So here's one. 
Lovers of themselves. Rather than living a me-first life, live a you-first kind of life. You want to know something? People will sit up and take notice if you're living a you-first life in a me-first culture. People will be lovers of money. You want to live a radically different life that people will notice? Live a generous life rather than a greedy life in our culture. Boy, people say, what in the world is that about? How's that working? Don't be boastful, but share credit. Give credit to others. Don't be proud, but be humble. After all, we all come to Jesus with great need. Take the list of 18, and I guarantee you, you'll find places in the Bible where the opposite of the 18 are mentioned as what it's like to continue what Jesus started. So even though we don't have the positive list in the chapter, you can figure it out, can't you? Instead of living a narcissistic life, live a you-first life. Instead of living a relativistic life in a relativistic culture, stake your life on true truth and live that out. Instead of living as a consumer, live life as a giver. Not seeking to get all that you can, but seeking to give to others so that they can receive what they need and what they want. I guarantee, if we would live the opposite of the list, we would surprise and shock the people around us, wouldn't we? And maybe that is what it means to continue what Jesus started. You read through the Gospels at how Jesus lived. He's living the opposite of the 18, right? Now, again, a little price came along with that. And there's a, Paul even mentions the price here. There's going to be pushback on that, right? People want us to conform. But receive the pushback. If you, if you live as salt and light, you're going to experience hurt along the way. Just make sure the hurt is for the right reason. And then we've got one last one. Get rooted in Jesus. In, chapter five, uh, in verse 15, here's the transition verse, right? Moving from the culture, moving to the Bible, which we'll talk about next week. So Paul says to Timothy, remember, you've known the Holy Scriptures, but what's the purpose of the Holy Scriptures? Not just to make you smart, not just so you beat your buddies at Bible trivia. What's the purpose of the Scripture? To make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're getting sick of hearing me say this. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to him. We don't study the Bible to learn really cool facts about the Bible. We don't study the Bible to say, you know what, if I follow these things and get on the treadmill, if I climb the ladder of all the advice that's listed, if I live the opposite of those 18 things, God will love me and reward me. No, you can't live those 18 things. We're broken and we're bound to. Look to Jesus, the one who always returned good for evil and the one who took our evil upon his shoulders paid that debt so that now the Spirit can change, transform us into something that's good, that continues what Jesus started. That's the mission. I was thinking uh, about what Paul's calling Timothy to do. And uh, I was thinking like this. You ever, uh, you ever drive by a new development being built? The first thing the developer does is build a model home. Do you see it, Right? And, you know, he puts all the bells and whistles in it, all the upgrades in the home. And what happens is the developer wants to get you into the model home. And he gets you in the, now the model home isn't your home, but the model home is kind of what the rest of the development's going to be like. Here's what I think 2 Timothy's about. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, 
be a model home for the forever kingdom. You be one of the first ones built. And together, let's be a community of model homes that live out, not perfectly, like those model homes don't have garages and stuff, right? They have offices. Um, but a reasonable facsimile of what the ultimate community and home is going to be like. You be a model home. So I leave you with a question I think Paul was leaving Timothy with. What are you modeling? What kind of a model home are you for the forever kingdom? Are you a reasonable facsimile that engages culture and understands culture as we continue what Jesus started? Are you a model home for the wrong development? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you don't leave us to our own devices to figure out how this uh, thing should work. But you tell us that we need to have our eyes opened to see what our context, our culture, and our situation is all about. Not that we emulate it, not that we follow it, but that so we know the values, we know the narratives, we know the infections and the affections from that culture that are impacting others and have impacted us. But Lord, we recognize that we are to be continuing what Jesus started. And so we come to the Scripture and we learn Jesus' story. We come to the Scripture and we see how it should go. And so, Lord, I pray a prayer similar to the prayer that I'm sure Paul prayed for Timothy. Lord, help us to look around and see the culture that is bound and broken. Help us to look inside and see that we're broken and bound too. But help us to gaze at Jesus the one who sets us free, the one who restores us. And may we then become model, model homes, model, model people, model communities, becoming what the forever kingdom will be like. Help us to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, would you stand with us as we close today? sing the hope of Jesus Christ, the one who builds our community, the one who gives us life, life everlasting. So sing with us this
so much for joining us today. We'll have people down front to pray with you. Otherwise, we'll see you next week. Thanks again.